Hello everybody, Marshall here to once again encourage you to go over to the Patreon page for this podcast. That's patreon.com slash journey into. Just yesterday I posted our latest outfield excursion where Rish and I talk about Meteor, a disaster movie from 1979 starring Sean Connery along with Carl Malden, Brian Keith, Natalie Wood, Martin Landau, and Henry Fonda. It was a lot of fun to talk about, as was this movie that's being featured today, which has been up on Patreon for probably two months now. And with that said, I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Outfield Excursions here on the Journey Into Podcast. Uh, This is where we get to talk about various movies, and I I can't do it without without my good friend Rish Outfield. Good evening. How's it going, Rish? Hey, it's it's going fine, despite uh, the subject matter of tonight's uh, movie. You said that you couldn't do the show without me. I think you could. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if you could legally call it outfield excursions, but uh, a lot of times you will talk about movies in your Patreon addresses. And there have been a couple of times when you go into detail, you tell the story of a movie and then what you and your family thought of it. And I have felt jealous because it feels like this show. Oh, that's true. <laughs> And I was just like, I want to talk about that. I saw that movie. (laughs) If only we could do this on a weekly basis, you know, if we have the time to do that. Well, nobody knows as well as as you uh, just how much work it is to do a regular podcast, even when it's your uh, journey into thing and you do the radio shows where all you have to record are the bookends, you know, the introduction and then afterward it's still impossible to get one of those out a month. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because we don't have a team of people that are editing it and doing cover art for us and uploading it and putting it on the the feed and doing all the keywords and the description and saving the links and putting it on the blog. And I'm sure there's 10 other things that I have missed saying that you have to do for a podcast. And yeah, you release this show on your Patreon page first yes and that means a few days later you have to remember to also upload it on the regular journey into page and i do the same thing with my podcast and there are times when it's been like two weeks and i've forgotten to post it in the other way place it's just so many uh, plates to keep spinning there's just no way we could do this as a weekly show no unless it was a job where we had a paycheck, we had a chunk of our time permanently set aside where we had to do it, you know? Yeah, and it would make our jobs seem a lot easier when we're watching movies that aren't particularly good, like this episode's selection. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you why we are here doing this episode, because uh, I think it has an interesting story behind it. Yeah, we uh, on Halloween, uh, we learned that Sean Connery had passed away. And so we were 
texting back and forth about it. And then I thought, you know, we should do a Sean Connery movie for our next outfield excursion. And, you know, just kind of talk about him a little bit and talk about the one of the movies that he's done. And, you know, just kind of make it all about him. And so we kind of went back and forth on, well, what can we do it on? And, and we've talked... Uh, at times about doing Marnie, we definitely wanted to do more Hitchcock, and we thought, well, we could, hey, we could kill two birds with one stone and do Alfred Hitchcock's Marnie, which stars Sean Connery. So that's kind of what our selection process was for this one. And had you seen Marnie before? I had seen Marnie years and years ago, uh, probably 20 years ago, and I had remembered not liking it, but then I thought, well, you know, I was pretty young and, and, uh, you know, maybe I didn't understand everything. And, you know, I didn't even realize it was Sean Connery at the time. So it's like, oh, cool. I can watch Sean Connery. And, and I like Tippi Hedren from the birds and stuff. So I <laughs> thought it was a good choice. Past tense. You thought, I it, thought was it was a good choice. choice. I, th- uh, I thought maybe it would be one of those experiences where, hey, that movie wasn't that bad. I don't know why I didn't like it as much. And I did look it up, and it has a uh, 83 uh, tomato score on Rotten Tomatoes. So I thought, oh, well, there's enough critics that still like this movie, so can't be that bad. Yeah, I meant to tell you that at the end of the podcast, after we talk for a half an hour about how terrible this movie is, because I was floored to find an 83 on Rotten Tomatoes. And my theory is all of these are reviews from the modern day people who are diehard Hitchcock fans revisiting this movie all these years later uh, because when the movie came out it was not well received it was not liked yeah I was curious about that to find out how it did at the box office and that kind of thing and yeah it was released in 1964 following the birds right it came out after the birds but this had been Hitchcock's plan to follow up Psycho this was going to be the next movie that he did. And there was a movie uh, a couple of years ago called Grace of Monaco with Nicole Kidman playing Grace Kelly. And it was all about her being the princess of Monaco and deciding what she wanted to do with her life. And the opening scene of that movie is Alfred Hitchcock comes to Monaco to visit Princess Grace. And he's got this script with him of Marnie that has been written with her in mind, and he's there to try and lure her back to Hollywood to make another movie because she had retired from the film business after she had fallen in love with the prince and become this princess. But Hitchcock felt like he had never been able to recapture the magic of Grace Kelly as his leading lady. And he had tried with Vera Miles and he had tried with Kim Novak and uh, he just didn't feel like they were Grace Kelly. And so he pitches her this, this story and she reads the script and she says, and who is going to be the leading man? And he says, oh, you've not heard of him. He's this Scottish bloke. Cabby Broccoli is super fond of. Not super fond, but whatever <laughs> Hitchcock would have said, dreadfully fond of. Anyways, throughout the movie, uh, Grace of Monaco, she has all these problems and, and Monaco is having all these struggles with France because Monaco is a very small country and they're being pressured and the prince has all these pressures on him 
And ultimately, she decides that her place is by his side and that she's going to be the princess of Monaco. She's going to take an active role in the leadership of this country. And she sends her apologies to Alfred Hitchcock. She's not going to come back. She's not ever going to do a movie again. And she's going to be a princess. And I found that really interesting because I just saw that movie I don't know, a month ago, I didn't think it was particularly good, but I thought that it was neat that it starts out with Hitchcock. Uh, anyway, during the run-up to making Marnie, when he was trying to get financing and he was tr trying to get Universal to pony up the dough to pay Grace Kelly, uh, he kept raising his price. Ultimately, he offered her $800,000 wow. to come out of retirement to play Marnie in this movie and in the time that, he, that they, you know, he, he was waiting for her answer. He went ahead and developed the birds, found Tippi Hedren. She was a, a blonde, you know, that could potentially replace Grace Kelly. And then when she said no, they went ahead and did Marnie. Uh, but by this point, it was 1964. Connery had already done Dr. No and From Russia With Love. And I believe he had shot... Goldfinger, and it had not yet come okay. out. Uh, and this this was the first role he had done since his rise to fame as James Bond. His agent had tried to get him a bunch of jobs in between making these Bond films for Eon Productions, and he didn't want anything where he would be a spy. He didn't want anything where he would be a killer. He didn't want anything where, you know, it, it would be him fighting people. And his agent said, well, what do you want? And he said, I, I want to do a movie for Alfred Hitchcock. That's kind of how he got attached to this is Cubby Broccoli, who basically owned Connery's contract, contacted Hitchcock and said, you know, I've got this, this young man that really wants to work with you. And, and so that's, that's how that happened. But I guess it's time to talk about Marnie. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to focus on the things I can say definitively, because there are people that really like this movie. I discovered a film critic named Richard Brody from The New Yorker that says that Marnie is Hitchcock's best film. Really? So before I lambasted it, I wanted to just, you know, give the background a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, I guess there there are a couple little things that are kind of neat about it. Uh, so we can talk about those as we go through. I was curious, do you know anything about the actor Martin Gable? He he plays Mr. Strutt in this. And I don't know, I, I looked through his filmography. He has a lot of TV roles and stuff like that back in the 60s, but nothing stood out to me. But man, I think Hitchcock really liked this guy because every time he like had a close-up on his face and... <laughs> And just, you know, took over the whole scene when he was in it uh, both times. I thought maybe he was a popular actor at the time or something like that. But it was just interesting choice, I thought, the way that he framed this side character in this. Are you familiar with who Strutt was? Do you remember him? Sure. Uh, Strutt was her boss at the beginning of this movie. Uh, the one that what that knew, is it Mark? What what is Connery's character? Yeah, name? Mark Rutland. Rutland, yeah, he knew Mark Rutland, and then later he ends up getting invited to the, the party, and yeah, in that scene, 
Strut is set up sort of as our antagonist. If you can imagine that Marnie and Mark are our protagonists, but also Lil is set up as an antagonist. Yes. <laughs> but I, I'll get into that once we dis, once we tell you who these people are. But no, I had never seen Martin Gable. I I don't know who he is. I looked at his filmography just now while you were talking, and yeah, I I don't I don't recognize him. <laughs> he just the way that he was filmed. He just had such a striking presence in this movie, and I just thought, wow, this Hitchcock must have really liked this guy. And he, you know, he he does not like. He's very character actor ish. You know, he he doesn't have anything stand out. You know, handsome or anything like that. He's just a normal guy. But in the beginning, so I can't remember the name that she had when she worked for Strut. Marion Holland. That's the girl. Marion Holland. Can you describe her, Mr. Strutt? Certainly I can describe her. Five feet five, 110 pounds, size eight dress, blue eyes, black, wavy hair, even features, good teeth. <coughs> well, what's so damn funny? There's been a grand larceny committed in these premises. You could tell that she had a history of Stealing, you know, we see her at the very beginning where she she has this money in her purse and she changes suitcases and and has different social security cards with different names on it. And so, you you know, you, you kind of get through the filming that, you know, this she's done this before. She's stolen money. And then it goes to this scene where Mr. Strutt is talking to the detectives from the police and he's describing that she stole money out of his safe and he describes her in great detail and you can and then he asked they ask if if she had any references and comes to find out she didn't so you can kind of tell he hired her based on her looks rather than her qualifications uh, which is probably how she gets into these things and is able to steal the money Uh, but he's you know he wants to to get her and he describes her like you said the mark rutland is there and he kind of overhears and is kind of musing at uh, his friend's plight, I guess. And it just kind of establishes these characters. And then it goes on to and follows Marnie more and what, what she does after she steals the money. Um, and she goes and visits her mother, who is played by Louise Latham. <laughs> Any relation? No, and my wife even looked into it because we were watching it, and I said, "Oh, that's the, this actress is played is Louise Latham, spelled correctly and everything." And uh, the next day, she even did some digging because she likes to get into genealogy and stuff, and she couldn't find anything in particular with her. But <laughs> I thought it was interesting. How, however, I I wasn't necessarily impressed <laughs> with Louise Latham's acting, but. Anyway, she uh, she is Bernice Edgar, who is the, the mother of Marnie. And I thought this scene was kind of interesting. When Marnie goes to visit her, there's this little girl, this neighbor girl that um, her mom is watching. And she, she just has a dislike for this little girl. She's jealous that she has more time with her mother than she does. And just very spiteful and petty about it. And she, she buys her mom things and gives her money, you know, just, oh, don't you like what I got you? And these those kinds of things. But this is the first scene where we also establish that 
something's not quite right with Marnie because she sees some uh, some red flowers. Gladiolas. Yes, some red gladiolas. And she sees the red flowers and she just freaks out and the, the camera goes into a red filter and she's just and she has to get rid of these flowers. She can't stand being around them. And so she puts some chrysanthemums, I think, that she brought in there and, and you know, gets gets rid of the the red flowers. And so something's not right here. You know, it kind of gives us some some hints of that. Uh, we also learn that she loves horses. Uh, she goes out to this. She stays at an inn when she visits her mother. And then she she rides out to this stables, I guess, and gets on this horse and takes off and She's just extremely happy when she's with this horse and and riding uh, with the horse. And so, you know, these little things are getting established along the way. And then I guess we, we come back to Sean Connery, to Mark Rutland, when uh, she comes. And she, she always changes her hair color as a disguise. And, of course, she like I said, she has different names. And she goes to the company that Mark Rutland uh, works at or runs and takes a job interview. And did you get the impression that he knew right away who she was or was it after yes, I did. the interview? Because Strut says something about how, do you remember that she would always pull her skirt down over her knees, almost like she was trying to draw attention to them. And that's the first thing that she does. And Connery sees her doing it. Um, and, and maybe he doesn't remember her, but he does put in a good word for hiring her. He encourages his employee to hire her, even though, once again, she hasn't got any references. Exactly. Um, you know, she gets a job with, at his kind of behest, and she gets to know the, the main secretary who's uh, played... <laughs> I knew her right was it Marriott Hartley? Marriott Hartley, right? I recognized her. And she watches things from her desk and she can see where the safe is. And she sees that the the main boss guy always goes to the secretary's desk and looks for the combination of the safe. And she gets to know the secretary and, you know, learns all the little secrets about who Mark is and, and everything like that. And you can tell she's scheming, you know, she here this is another mark for her and she she plans to steal money from this company as well. And here again she she says I I'll work any hours, I'll work overtime, whatever you need. I'll, I'll I'm here for you. And so uh, we have a scene where Sean Connery asks if she can come on a Saturday and do some dictation for him in his office. He kind of has a corner office off to the side and he invites her in and uh, I believe he says he he's uh, studying one of his interests is biology animal biology and he's doing writing a paper or something like that and the the more he talks to her we learn that and she asks you know are oh are you interested in human psychology and he says oh well, yes I am I'm very interested in what could cause um, people to do things and you get the sense that he's studying her he's watching her he's very interested in her behavior and wants to know you know how she does things 
and there's a a storm that comes up while they're talking in his office, you know, where she's setting up to dictate and the lightning's coming through the window and it scares her and he just he's very bemused and he's he's almost, you know, entertained by watching her and she starts calling out, "Stop the colors. I can't stand the colors." Colors. What colors? <laughs> right. And he, you know, then a tree crashes or a branch crashes through the window and he, and she runs to the door and, and he grabs her in an embrace and right away just goes in for the kiss, <laughs> which is, is very indicative of for the rest of the movie. But, um, you know, he just kind of takes advantage of this situation where she's in a vulnerable state and after it's all over, the storm's over, she, she kind of calms down and. And she doesn't really remember everything. She doesn't remember the that she said anything about colors, or she's just trying to cover it up. And because he's asking her about the colors, and she says, oh, "I don't remember anything like that." Now you you told me before we started recording that you hadn't seen the trailer for this, and it's very interesting. In the trailer, Hitchcock is you know doing his normal routine where he's making little puns and. And, you know, talking about the movie and trying to introduce these characters. And it shows a scene where, in this office, where she is at the safe trying to steal the money. And it's a dark room. And Sean Connery is in the room at the desk. And he's watching her try to steal the money. And then the storm comes and all this stuff. And I don't know if if that was just trickery for how... Hitchcock filmed the, the trailer or if it was the scene was changed after the trailer was made you know we talk about Rogue One and things like that where the trailer is so much different than the finished product but I, I've seen that a lot in uh, older trailers as well it's not a new thing so I thought that was interesting at least the trailer made it look like he watched her try to steal the money from his own safe in his office but again, I think we're just establishing the characters here. Now we're bringing them together into somewhat of a relationship. And he starts asking her out to go various places. Did you have more you wanted to say before we go go too far? I I, I don't think so. Do, do you want me to take over or what, what are you saying? Um, yeah, I guess he invites her out to his, his house, I believe. Well, they, they go to... Uh race a uh, horse race because she tells him that she loves horses and she lets it slip at this horse race that one of the horses that's running she has known since she was two years old and that she used to ride it when she was a little girl uh wherever she grew up and at this point up to this point she's only told lies her name is a lie she's a widow she's got a dead husband uh and you know where she's from all of this stuff is 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 constructed because she doesn't want you know to be identified later she know she's she's only taken this job so she can steal but he's really smitten with her it's 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 weird they're they're at this horse race and he goes to make a bet and a man recognizes her from one of her previous incarnations pardon me but you're Peggy Nicholson, aren't you? Remember me? 
I'm sorry, what did you say? I said, aren't you Peggy Nicholson? No, I'm not. Yeah? I was pretty sure you were. You know, when I first saw you down here... I... No, I'm sorry, you've made a mistake. I am not Miss Nichols. Nicholson. Nicholson. Frank Abernathy introduced us a couple years ago in Detroit. Frank Abernathy. You remember Frank. No, I do not know anyone named Frank Abernathy. I have never known anyone named Frank Abernathy. Now, will you please go? Oh, come on now, honey. You're trying to pull my leg, aren't you? Now, why should any young lady want to pull your leg? Uh, Mark comes up and he protects her from this guy and says, you know, you've made a mistake. Now apologize. Good, you have apologized. Now walk away. But this guy is, is certain that he knows who she is, and I, I'm sure that he, Mark, picks up on that as well. I mean, I don't know how much he knows about whether she was the thief. I don't know if he thinks that there are holes in her story, uh, but certainly later he looks into everything that she has said and tries to find out, you know, the truth. Yeah, and it, it has one of uh, Sean Connery's, uh, one of my favorite lines from the movie when they're they're after this all happens and then later on they're going to leave the the horse track and they're leaving and that same guy's there and he tries it again you know tries to trip her up and call her by her old name and sean connor's like oh you're pushing your luck old boy <laughs> and just kind of moves him out of the way or whatever i thought that was pretty fun yeah like connery has so much magnetism and charm even in this role, and I don't know how old he's supposed to be. He's got lines, you know, on his forehead. I believe at this point he's 33 uh, in real life. And uh, he's a, a millionaire. He's the head of this business. He, he runs it for his father, who never even leaves the house and has never come to this uh, office that he owns but he's so confident and he's so like sure of himself and dedicated and patient. And he's just like, he's got no flaws at all. Mark, uh, what's his name? Rutland. <laughs> Mark Rutland. And he, he brings her out I, to meet know, I, his I, father. And, uh, I guess his, I think it's his sister-in-law, like she had married his brother or something, but his brother died, and so she just lives at the house? Is that... No, no, he Connery had been married, and this was his wife's younger oh, sister. Oh, gotcha. And then when she died, she's still living at the house, but she's clearly enamored with Mark. Definitely, yeah. Her name's Lil, and she was played by Diane Baker. Who was really great in this, I thought. Yeah, I, I I really liked her, which <laughs> which is unusual in this movie. <laughs> uh, so yes, he he introduces Marnie to the family, and I can't think of anything that happens after that until it uh, until the theft happens. W am I missing a scene? She no, just, that's that's pretty much it. He just he you know he's obviously smitten with her and he's he's trying to do more and more with her she's a little bit nervous about it you know because she just wants to steal the money and get out of here and so eventually she does she she stays after everybody else is leaving for the day and she goes in the 
bathroom and waits till she doesn't hear any voices. And then she goes out and she goes into the, the main office and she looks up the combination in the drawer and goes to open the safe. And, you know, maybe Hitchcock had this idea for this scene because this was the one of the purest, you know, Hitchcock moments of the, of the movie. Kind of the only thing that really kind of had some of those elements to me. In the scene, she starts to go and try to open the safe and the, the camera pulls out. And she leaves the door to the office open and you can see her in the office and you can see the rest of the office. And then you see this cleaning, cleaning lady come by at the back of the office, you know, away from where she's at. And as she's stealing the money and doing various things, you can see the cleaning lady getting closer and closer uh, to the office door. So kind of building that tension. And then she, she gets the money, closes the safe. She's coming out of the office. She sees the cleaning lady but the cleaning lady doesn't notice her she's just mopping the floor busy so she decides she's gonna you know try to get by not being seen she takes off her shoes so she won't make any noise as she passes from the office over to the where the stairs are at and she starts walking slowly across the, the whole time the cleaning lady's just doing her thing not looking up uh, not reacting to anything and as she's walking, she had put her shoes in the pockets of her coat. And you start to see one of these shoes, as she's walking, start to slip more and more out of the pocket, knowing that it's going to drop and she's going to be discovered. And eventually it does, clangs down on the floor, and she stops, freezes. But the cleaning lady isn't phased. She just keeps on doing her thing, doesn't look up, doesn't hear the noise. And so she quickly picks up her shoe and runs down the stairs. And then another guy uh, comes by. Maybe he was cleaning the bathroom or something. And he comes out and he, he touches the lady on her, sh the cleaning lady on her shoulder. And he talks really loud, close up to her. He says, hey, you're going really fast. Today. You got a hot date or something like that? So just to establish that she's hard of hearing and you have to talk really loud to get her attention. And I thought that scene was really good. You know, it's kind of a classic Hitchcock kind of thing, but it was pretty short. It it worked great because the music drops out in that whole scene and it's just silent. It is, yeah. And the silence makes you super uncomfortable. And I really liked that shot where it's pulled way, way back and you see into the office and down the hall next to the office. Yeah, you're right. That That screamed Hitchcock. That was definitely something that he had to have storyboarded beforehand and he knew exactly how he was going to do it. And, and it's one of the scenes that works. It is. Best. Yeah. And, and my theory is he came up with that scene after they had already filmed her stealing the money from Mark's office. And so they just changed that up instead, but I could be totally wrong, but <laughs> based on what I saw in the trailer, I, I, I that's my theory. So, um, so yeah, she steals the money. She, so she, she leaves town and changes her hair color again. Now she's blonde right. and she, uh, I'm trying to think what happens. She goes to where this horse is. She's got this black horse that she loves and she's riding the horse and she's gotten away with it. It's a terrible process shot of her riding <laughs> the horse. It gets worse. And then as she's coming back to the pasture or whatever you call it, there is Mark Rutland 
walking toward her. He has found her. And I don't think they tell us where this is, but it's in another city. Or maybe it's in Virginia, does it? I, I can't remember. Yeah, I can't either. I know she grew up in Virginia, but that I don't know if that's where her mom... I guess that would be where her mom still is, so... But he explains that he had remembered that she had said that she knew this horse from when she was two years old. And so he called these stables and asked around and checked every single one of them until he found the stable that had this horse. And he found her there. And she uh, is super cold to him. He has caught her. And she doesn't know if he's going to go to the police. She doesn't know, you know, what, what he's going to do. But she just wants it over with. She wants to know what's going to happen She next. continues to lie. Yeah, yeah. He asks her, he tells her that he remembers her from Strut's office and that she's done this before. But that's after she said this, you know, she hadn't done it before. So he says, how many times have you done it? And I think she says three or four, and he knows that that's a lie, and she says five. And I think we know that that's a lie, too. Yeah. But here's I just such a strange plot twist. He tells her that she's going to go back with him to Philadelphia. They're going to replace the money, or he's already replaced the money. And the two of them are going to get married. Uh and, and that's kind of the essence of the proposal. It's not a will you marry me or anything like that. It's here's what we're going to do. And then it, he's going to go back and she's going to move into the house with him because they're going to get married immediately. And it's basically so he can keep an eye on her, I guess. Yeah. Keep it, her from getting away. It's I, really sketchy at, the, at, at this point. He wants to get to the bottom of who she is and what's going on. And the best way to do it is for them to get married and go on a boat together where it's just going to be the two of them and she cannot run. Right. And I think that's the, the extent of the romance of this scene. It is, I'm blackmailing you into marrying me and going away with me. And maybe I'm sugarcoating it. Oh, listen to me, Mark. I am not like other people. I know what I am. I doubt that you do, Molly. In any event, we'll just have to deal with whatever it is that you are. Whatever you are, I love you. It's horrible, I know. But I do love you. You don't love me. I'm just something you caught. You think I'm some kind of animal you've trapped. That's right, you are. And I've caught something really wild this time, haven't I? I? Oh, I think this is the part where he says, you are a wild animal, and I've tracked you, and I've caught you, and by God, I intend to keep you. Yeah, I know. It's really... It's something like... <laughs> it's, it's, he's that zoologist that he mentioned before, and he finds this animal fascinating. Oh, and Marnie, when we get home, no cute ideas about absconding with a wickwind silver. Just get a grip on yourself for one short week, and after that, well, you can take legal possession. Like you? Like you take legal possession? Yes, if you want to put it that way. Somebody's got to take on the responsibility for you, Marnie. And it narrows down to a choice of me or the police, old girl. Yeah, that from this point on, I was just, I don't know, I was turned off by the whole 
concept of what, what was going on. Um, it just, I mean, I, well, it, it gets worse. Did you watch it with your family or do you watch it by mostly yourself? by myself? My wife was doing other things and watching parts of it or whatever. It does. It, it does definitely get worse. And, and on her character becomes very honest at this point and says, you don't understand. You don't know who I am. You don't know what you're, you know, what, what you're getting yourself into. And, and, you know, he's just kind of like, oh, I know, but I can't help who I love and all this kind of thing. So, so the next scene, and I don't know why this is in here because it bugged me for the rest of the movie. But the next scene, those two have gotten married and they've gone off on their honeymoon. And Lil is talking to like the family attorney. And the attorney is talking about how much money Mark has withdrawn and that he bought her a $40,000 wedding ring. And this is $40,000 in 1964. Six carat, I think yeah. they say. And and I thought, okay, I, I think I know where this is going. Because now she has a, a means on her hand to escape and start over. But it's never, ever brought up again, this thing like the, the you know, that that he has inadvertently given her freedom on her, you know what I mean? To go wherever she wants, pawn this thing and start again. But that, that doesn't happen. They go on this cruise together. And as far as I know, they never leave the, uh, I want to say apartment. What do they call it on the a, cabin. they never leave the cabin. And she makes it clear at, from the get go that she is not to be touched she doesn't want romance. She doesn't want to be kissed by him. They're definitely not going to sleep in the same bed. She goes as far as to say, if you touch me, I'll die. I can't. I can't. I can't. God's sakes, Marnie. If I can't stand it, I'll die. If you touch me again, I'll die. I won't touch you. I promise I won't touch you. Just get out of that damn corner, please. Now, suppose you tell me what this is all about. Is it your own little way of saying you don't find me particularly attractive? I told you not to marry me. I told you. Oh, God, why couldn't you just let me go? Mommy. Don't. Please don't. Let me fix you a drink. I don't want a drink. Drink some of brandy. I don't want it. Just leave me alone. How can I find out what's the matter with you and find some way to help you? The only way you can help me is to leave me alone. Can't you understand? Isn't it plain enough? I cannot bear to be handled. By anybody or just me? You, men. And we get a moment where it seems like there's tenderness. And Mark says, you know, you know, very well, you know, here is your bed and here is my bed. And you have my right. word that... Uh, <laughs> That it won't go beyond that. And he, again, he's watching her. He's studying her. He's trying to get to the bottom of why is she like this? Why, why, is she, why would she say, if you touch me, I'll die? And she does not warm one degree to him. I, I, I was shocked by how long this scene <laughs> goes on. It, they spend days on this boat, spending time together... And she doesn't warm to him. She doesn't grow to love him. She doesn't appreciate him. And then finally, he goes in 
And I guess he's waited as long as he's willing to wait. Yeah. And he, she, she's got a bathrobe on and he pulls it off her and she just like goes to another place. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like this dead look goes over her face. Uh, she's no longer present in the room. And he grabs her and he embraces her and he takes her to the bed. But it's strange because, you know, like you said, when he's saying, you know, you have my word, I won't touch you. And he seems like he he really does care for her and he just wants to help her. And then in this scene, you know, he he rips her bathrobe off and he sees how she reacts to it. And then he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, Marnie. And he puts... He takes off his robe and he has stuff underneath and then, and then he puts it over her. And so, you know, I'm thinking, okay, he realized he went too far and now he's covering her up and he's going to leave her alone, but nope. (laughs) He lays her down the bed and, you know, you have this weird camera angle where you just see her face and then as she goes down onto the bed and then it goes to a close up on his eyes, all steamy and everything oh my gosh this close-up was ridiculous dude i don't even know how you can show to show a close-up without like a microscope that was so i mean it is meant to be like jarringly close to his eyes right yeah so he wakes up the next morning after this and she's not in her bed or her side of the bed however you want to say (laughs) oh man dude so he goes looking for her and she's floating in the pool face down in the pool she he's jumped into the pool and he pulls her out and he does he resuscitates her brings her back to life and she he says why if you wanted to kill yourself he says why didn't you jump over the side and she said i wanted to kill myself but i didn't want to feed the damn fish <laughs> i think that's yeah, the line yeah essentially yeah and I think delivered by somebody else, this would be the line that everybody remembers. But it's such a weird po- uh, place for a joke. Yeah. After what has happened and all that, that I just, I still shake my head about this line. Well, yeah, from this whole thing, from this point on, you know, I really, it really took me out of my enjoyment of the movie and even my enjoyment of Sean Connery's character. You know, he, I mean, he basically broke her trust. He essentially raped her, even though they were married. She never ever, ever wanted anything to do with them. And then, yeah, she tries to kill herself. And it's, I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. You know, he's really broken her trust and everything. And then to make a joke out of it or to mock her after he brings her back to life. I don't know. <laughs> it just set me off on a, I didn't care for, for much of, of the characters after that. But I did want to see how it ended, but it it is a bit of a deal breaker of a move of uh in the movie, and this is in 1964. I don't know how shocking that is then, but in 2020, that sort of stuff is so much more taboo. I think so much more icky. Well, unacceptable. <laughs> uh, you know, we're living in a an era where no means no, and that people have said that for so long. Uh, you know, believe her and uh, time time's up, and you know we're we, the 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 post Harvey Weinstein world that yeah. we live in. 
Uh, it's just, it's, it's a speed bump that I don't know that a movie could recover from in 2020. Yeah. You know, I try, uh, but what they, I try cause I do listen to other movie reviewers and things like that. And a lot of them get so caught up in wringing their hands over, you know, sexist things in old movies or, uh, TV episodes and I, you know, I, I kind of always think, well, geez, you know, you got to realize that things were different back then. You can't, you know, totally put our sensibility on to somebody in the 60s. And so I try not to do that. I try yeah, not to wring my hands like that and and get so worried about that. But man, this <laughs> it was hard to overcome my uh, disdain for for that in this movie. And to, to see it from the light of somebody that lived back then. Right. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I wasn't saying, you know, that, that, that it's unacceptable in any time, except for that it is kind of unacceptable in the way that they formatted it, in the way that they presented it. Because he does give her his word, and then he breaks the word, and it's just, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. They So they end up coming home. They... They cut the honeymoon short and they come back and immediately Lil, is Lil, Lil the name, yep. becomes suspicious because they have these conversations and, it, and it's almost as though Marnie is a prisoner at the house now. Mark is going off to work and he gives her orders, essentially, and then Marnie runs off and she calls her mother and she says, you know, I'm sorry, I, I haven't sent any money. I'll be able to get some money soon. And she had mentioned earlier that she didn't have any family. And I think Lil is suspicious of this woman. And then do they have the the dinner party or do they have the fox hunt next? Uh, no, it's the dinner party next. Okay, so she goes through... She goes through Mark's papers and Mark has written a list of things that he has to do. And one of the things is pay off strut. And Mark has, out of his own pocket, paid back the money that Marnie stole from strut. And his plan is to go back to all of these employers that she has stolen from over the years and pay them back and so that the police can never come after Marnie, essentially, right? Yeah, I think to, to protect her, yeah. But the thing is, they these people that she stole from can still press charges. And so that is going to be hanging over their heads, hanging over Marnie's head. Anyway, Lil figures out who Strut is, and she invites him to this big dinner party that they're having at the house. And all these guests come. And then, yeah, Strut shows up. And we see Strut before Marnie does. Uh, it's another Hitchcockian scene where, you know, the audience knows something the character doesn't. And we're waiting for him to see her and recognize And her. again, as soon as they open the door and he walks in, boy, it's a close shot on his face as he's talking to Lil. And I just wanted to point that out again. <laughs> so Mark sees Strut coming over and he tells her to just deny and he'll back her up. And so they pretend that, uh, that they have never met before, but 
uh, I I think the uh, the jig is yeah. up, basically, and so the next day is going to be a fox hunt, and Mark insists that Marnie go on the fox hunt with Lil because he wants to get them out of the house because he's going to have a meeting with Strut. Basically, he's going to pay off Strut. He's going to try and convince him not to press charges. He's going to. Mark is a, a, a businessman. He's really good with people. And so, you know, maybe he's going to charm Strut into uh, not pressing charges. But they go on this fox hunt and we get more just terrible process shots <laughs> of them not riding horses. And the, the, the hounds are tearing apart this, this fox, I as, assume, because Marnie gets set off. She sees the red of one of the huntsman's jackets and she has another fugue state and she goes takes off on her horse this is the black horse that she has loved her whole that life that he bought for that mark bought for her that's true he gives it to her like as a wedding present and lil sees marnie go nuts and ride off and she's jumping over things with the horse she's riding the horse harder than uh you're supposed to i suppose because she she she's lost her mind she doesn't know where she is or what she's doing and she ends up crashing uh, over a head stone wall oh it's a stone wall okay breaking the legs of the horse the horse is re- rolling around on the ground in agony and marnie rushes to like the servants quarters all of this stuff takes place in philadelphia but there's no way any of this is philadelphia <laughs> it's all supposed to be england and they you know they there are these old uh people the caretakers and she demands a gun from the caretaker so that she can kill the horse and she shoots the horse. And this was an amazing shot. I, I don't know how they did it. They focused in on the gun and you see the horse in the, the background out of focus. She pulls the trigger on the gun and the horse kicks and struggles and then goes still. And it's it was a really impressive shot. But Marnie has lost her mind, I think, at this point. And she rushes off to Mark's office again. To steal the money. To steal all the money. And she uh, she opens the safe. And she reaches for all of this stack of cash. But she can't bring herself to take it. She, she reaches. And some invisible barrier prevents her from grabbing it. She reaches and she can't do it. And then we discover that Mark is standing behind her watching this. And then he starts to talk to her and he sees the gun and he starts to talk to her and he says, it's, it's, it's your money. Go ahead. You know, you, you aren't actually stealing. You, this all belongs to you. You're my wife. And he's trying to make his way over to the gun and get it before she does. But then she sees what he's up to and she does go grab the gun and they struggle for a little bit. And eventually she does give him the gun. So nobody, nobody gets hurt or anything. Uh, so at this point, I think, Mark's had enough of of trying to, you know, just make things good. He he wants to have her confront her mother and find get to the source of all this um, stuff because he's looked her up. He's had a private investigator looking, and he found her mother in Virginia. And he says, "We're going to see your mother in Virginia." And she's like, "Oh no, I can't do that." But he says, "No, we're going." So he takes her, and they go down uh, to this same street where we've seen before near the harbor where there's a bunch of ships 
And anyway, they go into the mother's house and they talk to her. And she she's like, well, who are you? Because, of course, Marnie was lying to her mother as well and saying that she worked for this guy that was giving her all this money and she had a great job and all these things. Who are you, mister? You're not Mr. Pendleton. No, I'm not. Who's Mr. Pendleton? Well, then what have you got to do with my Marnie? Well, I'm Mark Rutland, Marnie's husband, Mrs. Edgar. Marnie hasn't been very well. I don't believe she's been very well since you had your accident. Oh, what? I think you've always called it your accident. What do you think you're talking about? Coming into my house like this, talking about my accident. You're not married to Marnie. I don't believe you. Marnie? Your daughter needs help, Mrs. Edgar. You've got to tell her the truth. She has no memory of what happened that night. And she needs to remember everything. You must help her. Mister, you must be plumb crazy. If you won't tell her, I will. I know everything that happened, and I'll tell her the whole story. Oh, no, you won't, mister, because you don't know the whole story. And nobody does but me. And, of course, the mother has lied to Marnie for years as well. Uh, the mother keeps talking about, you know, ever since my accident, you know, I haven't been able to do everything I needed to do to take care of Marnie and all this stuff. And, and he says, well, it wasn't really an accident, was it? And he starts to talk about all the things that he's learned about Marnie's mother that um, she used to basically sell, sell herself uh, to the sailors that would come through and... You know, they'd come by and, and, you know, Marnie always kept talking about this, this knocking on the door, knocking on the window. And it, she would always have these nightmares and about, no, don't, don't hurt my mom or stay away from my mom. And basically these guys would come and Marnie would have to get out of the bed and go sleep in the living room while the mom um, was with these sailors. And so, you know, we're. We're finally getting to the, the source of Marnie's problems here, you know, and then we start, we start going back to a scene where this accident happened. And so it's kind of all in sapia tones and we see a young girl with her mom and the sailor coming by and them going in the room and Marnie's sleeping out in the living room area. Uh, but then she starts to cry or you know, say, leave my mom alone. There's a thunderstorm. Oh, that's right. With the thunderstorm. And the sailor comes out and starts to talk to her. He says, oh, I'm sorry, little girl. You'll, you'll be okay. And it, it almost it's almost like he starts wanting to kiss her and things like that, which I thought was very odd because she was a very young girl, like six or seven years old. Yeah, they established she's five. Oh, five years old. In that yeah. scene. And... Yeah, I, th I think there's no bones about it. I think this is the 1964 equivalent of, uh, you know, this guy deciding to take liberties with the child. Yeah. Because uh, the mom comes in and says, get off her, get away from her. And then they struggle. She finds a, a poker for the fire and fireplace and hits the guy um, to knock him to get him off of the, the Marnie. And uh, then they're struggling, and, and he falls on her. Um, but, or w while they're struggling, Marnie gets up and, you know, stop hurting my mother, stop hurting my mother. And she picks up the poker and hits the guy in the head and kills him. And he falls on the mom, and, and that's how she gets injured. And so the, uh, this, this incident is why, you know, Marnie 
she sees the blood. You know, she's killed this guy. She sees the blood. So that's why she freaks out every time there's red. She sees red. You know, she forgot about the incident. She she had all these repressed memories. And the mom told the cops that she did it and to protect her daughter. And, you know, Mark has, has read the, the court transcripts. He knows all this stuff. He's just revealing it to, to Marnie and, and making them talk about this. And so that's pretty much the end of the movie. We learn the source of all these problems of, of Marnie. And they leave the mom... They uh, come out of the building and she says something like, oh, Mark, I I don't want to go to jail. I, I want to be with you. And uh, he's like, oh, yeah, you, sh- you should have. <laughs> I can't remember what he says, but it's pretty much like, yeah. Then they get in the car and they drive away. And that's that's the end of the show. So I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I've seen a, similar things in movies and TV shows and things like that. It just seemed like such a long road to get to the the source of Marnie's problems and a lot of unnecessary stuff along the way and then all of the stuff with the the rape on the boat and the blackmailing her to to marry her I don't know <laughs> there's not much good there's some good Hitchcock moments in it like the the scene at the party when Strut comes and when she steals the money from the company those are, are really good, you know, fun Hitchcock moments. But uh, the rest of it, I just thought was was pretty hard to watch. <laughs> and then even the acting, you know, I, I really liked Tippi Hedren in The Birds, but I didn't like her in this. I didn't think she, in some of the scenes where she was so distraught, it was overdone. And I know, you know, that's typical of the time as well, but... I wasn't very impressed with that. And then her mother, I didn't think was a very good actor. She sounded like Carol Burnett in one of the Mama's Family movie or TV shows or something like that. When did we decide which movie we were going to? As far as I know, it's still up in the air between the Waldo and the Bijou. It is not still up in the air, Mama. We decided on the Waldo before we left the house, so just shut up about it. (laughs) I did enjoy Diane Baker. I thought she did a good job and... But her character was strange, too, in that at times it almost felt like she cared for Marnie, too, that she wanted to help Marnie. I guess she was just being false. That was kind of uneven. And then, you know, Mark, you know, go went from one state to another. Of You thought he really cared about her, and then he uh, takes advantage of her. And just really uneven, I thought, the whole all the way around. I guess my my memory of not liking this movie was correct to begin with. Okay, I, I'm I'm exactly with you on that. Sometimes you remember not liking a movie, and like you said earlier, you just say, "Well, I was young, I didn't get it, or I couldn't appreciate the subtleties of this movie, or what you know what I mean." Yeah. And so go going to it again in 2020, I fully expected that I would be able to appreciate more. Uh, but I think I liked it less than I did the yeah, first time. Yeah. I didn't like it at all. And and I got to say, I the, the fault with me for, for me not enjoying the movie was that I hated Marnie from the very beginning. She was never likable. She was, I just couldn't stand her. And part of it is, you see Psycho in 1960, 
it starts out in a very similar way. Marion Crane steals from her boss. She steals this money and then she goes on the run. But the whole time you want her to escape, you are worried about her getting caught. There's the part where she falls asleep in the car and then the cop shows up and he's knocking on the window of the car and he's got these big mirrored sunglasses. He looks like an insect and we're like, oh shoot, she's busted. But he's just there to say, hey, it's very dangerous for you to sleep here on the side of the road. You need to move on. And you're like, oh wow, I thought her goose was cooked. There was nothing like that in Marnie. I didn't want her to get away with it. I didn't understand her motivation. They show at the very beginning all of these different IDs to show that she's done this again and again and again. And then we have that scene with her and her mother and there's something weird going on and she's jealous of the child and the mom is a, sorry to use this word, a psycho. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, there's, there's, oh geez, I don't know. And you know, the, the relationship with Connery, I never felt like she loved Mark or was attracted to Mark or wanted to be with Mark or recognized that there was something wrong with herself and wanted to overcome that. In fact, she seemed oblivious that she would have these spells or that the thunder would frighten her or the color red would set her off. She didn't know that there, there was anything wrong with her. And I just kept thinking, well, why, why do we want these two to work out? Why do we want... I didn't want him to live happily ever after. And then at the end of the movie, I guess we're to understand that they do live happily ever after that her remembering what she has forgotten. She's got these buried memories of murdering a man uh, to protect her mother. And that's why she can't be touched by a man. And, and once she remembers, maybe all of that is fixed and she doesn't feel like she has to steal. He says at the very, very end that a child that is uh, robbed of affection will look to fill that void in any way with anything that she can get her hands on. And that's his way of explaining why she compulsively steals. Like that's her way of taking control of her life is by stealing from men. Yeah, I, I guess so. Maybe we're to understand that now that she knows why she is the way that she is, she can fix herself. But, you know, the movie was two hours and ten minutes long. I guess we didn't need another scene where we see that she can be touched, that she is making progress, that she no longer freaks out when she sees the color red and all that stuff. But it just... I guess that's what we're supposed to assume from the final shot of the scene where they get in the car together. And But I didn't care. I didn't root for the, these two to work out their problems. The only redeemable thing for me in the movie at all was the charm of Sean Connery, of what a, a great movie star he was. I don't know that he was a great actor in this movie, but he was really interesting to watch. He's got these great big eyebrows and they're very evocative. <laughs> uh, but like I said, he was 33 years old, and I feel like this was probably a part for an older man. Yeah. This was probably one of those guys, you know, you get Cary Grant to play this part, and it feels very, very different. But th there's still no excusing the scene on the boat. Right. I don't know if even Cary Grant could have pulled that off. And I know that there were multiple screenwriters. First, Joseph Stefano was writing this. 
And then there was a replacement screenwriter and, and he had a falling out with Hitchcock over that scene, the scene where Mark takes Marnie. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> At least somebody was thinking it. And then there's a third screenwriter that is hired who is a female screenwriter. And she says, that's what Hitchcock wanted was this scene. That's why he wanted to adapt to the book was the, to, to see if he could pull off this scene in today's day and age. And so, of course, she left it in the the script, but it... It, just, it destroyed the integrity of the character of Mark, I think. It does, because we assume that he does love her, even though he watches her with this clinical eye. But then when that happens, he doesn't express remorse for himself. He doesn't realize that he is to blame for her trying to kill him herself. He goes, he cuts short the honeymoon and then he goes off to work. And I, yeah, I don't know if I'm being too hard on this movie, but if I'm not, then yeah, I need to be even harder on it. I, I, I feel bad that I suggested that we see this one. <laughs> I enjoyed our awful Green Knight movie more than I enjoyed this. Oh, for sure. Yeah, there was a lot, a lot more to enjoy in that one. And the, I guess the other thing that bothered me was, and I know this was of the time, you know, the, the 60s were psychology was in, you know, everybody was all into psychology and Freud and finding the repressed memories or, you know, the connection to your mother or, you know, all these things. And it was always with Freud, it was always something based around sexual tension or whatever. And uh, that's one of the things we haven't talked about. In the trailer for this, Hitchcock describes this movie as a sex mystery. (laughs) Which, I guess, after having seen the movie, I can see where he's coming from with that. But that's just a strange way to introduce a movie and try to get people to come watch it. So, Tippi Hedren, yeah, she was the lead in The Birds. And then she did this movie. And her career sort of stalled after this. And I, I wonder if it's because Marnie was not well-received. Yes, it has an 83 on Rotten Tomatoes, but all of that is modern reviews. You know what I mean? I, I just It was considered to be a, a really awful movie back in 1964. And what, what what's the name of the... It's not a YA, but the, the, the book series about S&M that was originally a Twilight fan fiction. What? Oh, uh, Shades of Grey. Fifty Shades of Grey. Okay, yeah, yeah. What's the name of the girl in Fifty Shades of Grey? Oh, phew. Dakota? No, that's the actress. I don't yes. know. Yes, Dakota Johnson. Her mother is Melanie Griffith. Okay. And Melanie Griffith's mother is Tippi Hedren. Okay. <laughs> And I just wanted to mention that. I just think that that's really interesting. You can cut that out if that's not interesting. No, I think that's interesting. It's, it's similar to, right, Jamie Lee Curtis being... Um, Janet Lee. Janet know. Lee's daughter. And Tony Curtis. And Tony Curtis, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd be really interested to hear somebody defend this movie. Especially, I would think, in modern times. It's just the, I don't know, the pseudo-psychology and the, the rape scene and all that stuff. And the, just taking advantage of somebody. You know, she's obviously 
fragile and needs help. And it's almost like he's preying on that to, I mean, he wants to help her, but he thinks he's the solution kind of thing. And I don't know. Well, I, uh, we'll never get to this movie because it's rated R. I think it's the only R-rated Hitchcock movie. I mean, people say that Psycho is rated R, but that's a lie. In 1972, he did another slasher called Frenzy. And I had heard my whole life that this was like a pale imitation of Psycho, and it's a really terrible movie, and it doesn't work. And he did it on a super, super low budget because it was so unsavory that nobody in Hollywood would do it. But he went back to England and made a movie there with English actors. And when I saw Frenzy, I was like, I really, really like this movie. <laughs> and and so I know that there are movies that everybody says are terrible that I can like. But this, I guess, is is one where, you know, if somebody says that it's it's there's something redeeming about it. I just I have to disagree. It It, it, it was a chore to see. And I'm sorry, we talked for a super, super long time about it, but I, I know I could, we thought, I well, could, we don't have much to say about this movie. <laughs> I could go on and on, though, about just all the things that I think didn't work in the movie. And, and I did want to talk about the girl, about Diane Baker, because I, I really liked her and she was super attractive. And I was I kept thinking, well, why is she in the movie? I don't understand what her, her role is, because she's like the other woman, but ultimately I, she's just there as an obstacle like i i guess or she's she's there so that eventually the truth can come out um yeah, but I, I, yeah i didn't recognize her i looked her up she played uh senator ruth martin in the silence of the lambs the mother of the oh. kidnapped girl and okay. then on house you remember house md she played dr house's mother uh, in six episodes. Huh. Uh, and I just, I thought, well, oh, that, that's cool. But I, I still didn't recognize her. I thought she was really, really cool. But uh, you never know who is going to strike your fancy. Uh, and I don't know. I do want to watch The Birds again. Yeah. And see if I like Tippi Hedren's character in that. Because I don't think it's her fault as an actress that this movie doesn't work. And that I hated Marnie so much. So, so I guess I guess we I will find out if we choose to watch the birds sometime. No, yeah, I I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, oh, maybe I should watch the birds again. I have that one, so I could I could watch that pretty easily. But yeah, there were just a lot of weird, like you're saying about Lil, that character. You know, it seems like she's going to be the a problem or the antagonist, and I guess she does cause problems by inviting Strut and stuff like that. But there was other things like I thought there was going to be more to the guy at the racetrack. Oh, like he was going to show up again. Yeah, like he was on to her. He was a, a detective or something like that, that, that he was going to show up again and there was going to be a fight or something with him. Because, you know, not only did he try to talk to her and, and confront her and, and introduce himself a couple times, but he followed them around. He went with them when they went to go, go look at the horses in the paddock and... He was just kind of falling around. I thought, oh, this is interesting. I wonder what's going to happen with this guy. And nothing. After that, the horse track scene, nothing. You never see that guy again. It's like, well, what was the point then? Of, I guess he was just another threat to her being found out. But they could have done a lot with that line of thought, I think, or sequence. But A couple, I don't know if it's redeeming qualities, but a couple interesting casting things is that... Uh, 
Mr. Rutland, Mark's father, was played by Alan Napier, who is Alfred in the 60s Batman TV show. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was kind of okay. cool. He was insanely tall, too. He was. I noticed how he towered over Sean Connery, and Connery wasn't a little guy. No, no, he wasn't. And then Bruce Dern played the sailor <laughs> in the... Uh... He's the sailor that gets killed by, by Marty. Yeah. And Bruce Dern was in Hitchcock's final film, Family Plot. Oh, Family Plot, yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize that. I mean, I've seen that movie a long time ago, but I didn't remember he was in it. So I, if we were doing a thumbs up, thumbs down, I'd definitely have a thumbs down <laughs> on this one. We should come up with a rating system or something. Not not a four-star or five-star thing, but this this would definitely be on the bottom of the list for me. Okay, yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> I think I would put Vertigo as probably the best movie we've seen. We've we've talked about on the show. Hmm. And yeah. The, the, so so it's a a Hitchcock bookend. Oh, there you go. We could have a Hitchcock scale. <laughs> <laughs> but we did this because we wanted to watch a Connery film in honor of Sean Connery. Yeah. Uh who was just one of my all-time favorite actors. I loved the man. I mean, every single day I either do an impression of him or I think of him. I've got a picture of him here on my wall I'm looking at right as we speak. It, it ruined Halloween to lose him on that greatest day of the year for me. But we wanted to do something in honor of him. We talked about watching Outland. We talked about watching Zardoz. We talked about watching... <laughs> Oh, what was what was the third one that you said? Uh, have you ever seen this? Oh, Meteor was one that I thought was looked interesting. I remember seeing Meteor on ABC in like 1985 or 86, and and recognizing that you know James Bond was in it. And I remember even then in mid 80s, there's this shot where the meteor is coming toward Earth, and it looked so fake. <laughs> Even to a little boy, I was like, wow. Uh, but yeah, if you want to put that on the list uh, for one day seeking it out, I, I would be happy to. Or I was, you know, even Entrapment, I, I haven't seen that forever either, but I remember liking that movie. Yeah, I haven't seen it since the theater, um, but there's a bunch of Connery movies I haven't seen since the theater. I would go out and see whatever he did because he was one of the few actors that could still redeem a bad movie it he was so interesting and so i don't know so iconic in the way that old movie stars were yeah where you know i my dad used to say you know i yeah well jimmy stewart can't make a bad movie <laughs> and that and 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 he was talking about you know 1950s jimmy stewart 1940s jimmy stewart and all that you know back then people would go to the cinema to see the new Rock Hudson movie, to see the new Cary Grant movie, to see, you know. Right. And and Connery was one of those where I saw Medicine Man on opening day. I saw Just Cause on opening day. I saw Punch the Quiche, Finding Forrester. I saw, uh, well, The Rock on opening day. And Entrapment, I saw, oh, 1998's The Avengers on oh. opening day. <laughs> and that movie makes Marnie look like <laughs> Rear Window. But he's great in it. But yeah, not only did I see 
Connery's last film, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, on opening day, but I bought the poster for it. Nice. Uh, and I just, yeah, I would be happy to see a bunch of Connery movies again in the future. Uh, but like you said, this killed two birds with one stone. We really like Hitchcock. We were talking about doing a couple of Hitchcock movies every single year. Uh, and then it also was Connery. It was, you know, where the, the bell curve. I don't know if that's what I'm looking at. The Venn diagram. <laughs> there you go. The Venn diagrams meet. Yeah. Yeah. First Night would be another movie that would be interesting to watch too. Again. I loved you, trusted you, and how did you repay me? Well, I guess at this point we should probably probably close for for the night, but uh I'm I'm not sure where we're going next for the next movie. We talked at one point about doing Artemis Fowl. I don't know if that's still in the card. Is that our new Wasp Woman, Artemis Fowl? Oh I forgot about Wasp Woman. See, that was supposed to be the running gag is I was supposed to beg you to do Wasp Woman every single episode. Dang. <laughs> Uh, I still haven't seen Artemis Fowl, I, and nothing has changed there. But, I, it, well, it, you'll have to let me know how long it takes you to edit this episode, because maybe we can get one in for Christmas. But if oh, not, we'll, yeah. we'll try and get something in in the new year. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. If we wanted to do a Christmas theme movie or just do whatever next. Well, it depends on when you can do it. We could do a Christmas theme movie. There's a ton of them. Now, my mom has started watching the um, the Hallmark made for TV Christmas movies, right? Uh, and they just show them twenty four hours a day on like Hallmark Movie Channel. Uh, and I was looking at her DVR. You know how it shows all the things that have been recorded, right? And there's like fourteen movies each day that have Christmas in the title on this Hallmark <laughs> channel. And I guess it's just a license to print money. You have a Christmas movie. You have Christmas in the title. And people of a certain age will watch it. Because <laughs> they're safe. They're, they're safe, yeah. Comfort food. <laughs> and they're all the same. <clears throat> they're the replacement for the modern rom-com, right? Yeah, I, I think they always have an aspect of that yeah. in them. They always have a romantic comedy aspect. And like I was saying, uh, I think in an earlier episode, that there's always a woman that works too hard and she doesn't have time for a man or, you know, something like that. She's trying to prove herself and she meets this guy and they don't hit it off. Uh, or, you know, she, she works too hard to celebrate Christmas. <laughs> but this guy's old-fashioned and he believes in a small town christmas that's right. <laughs> I, I think i've seen a movie or two like that you're right yeah uh anyway i i hope you don't pick one of those but no, I, I I, you know that. but I, I i would be happy to just you know as long as it's something i can find to sit down for an hour and a half and and watch some christmas movie with you uh, but again, if if this isn't going to come out before Christmas, then all of this needs to be a deleted scene. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Let people know that they can go to www.patreon.com forward slash journey into to support you on Patreon. They get 
episodes that nobody else gets. They get these episodes early. They get a Patreon address every month where you talk about what's going on in your life. And uh, it helps you get the motivation to edit this super, super long episode of our Marnie review. It does. Yeah, I I really uh, enjoy all the interactions I have on the Patreon page and uh, putting things out early or extra for people to enjoy. It's, it's a lot of fun. And you have your own Patreon as well at patreon.com slash Rish Outfield. And you have many of the same things, a Patreon address every month, early episodes and extra little things on there. So yeah, feel free to, to go to either of those Patreons or both if you'd like <laughs> and support us there. Again, I I always enjoy getting together and talking about movies, even if it's, and I enjoyed this, the experience of talking about Marnie more than I did the experience of watching Marnie. So that's always a good thing. And I guess until next time, we'll, uh, we'll let you go and, uh, have a good night, old boy. (laughs) Colors. What colors? (laughs) Good night. Good night. So, listeners, I've been studying you. I want to give you the benefit of the doubt, but recent experience tells me there's a slight chance that you could be a liar and a thief. In that case, I must tell you that this podcast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it as you see fit. Just give credit to Journey Into, who has legal possession. If you try to alter the audio... I assure you, you're pushing your luck, old boy. No cute ideas about trying to sell it either. If you do, I will track you and catch you, and by God, I will keep you. There, you listened nicely. You may go now. The suspense in this picture, Marnie, is what is the mystery behind a girl who is a thief, who is very strange that she cannot bear to see red flowers against white or any red against white. She has a mystery background and the the leading man in the picture is interested in her because she is a voleurs, a thief, and he wants to marry her. And he is therefore strange himself. So you have two very strange people. So the suspense must come. How do these two people get together? I guess he's had enough of it or whatever. So he's, he says, well, we're going to see... Hey, hey Marshall, sorry. 
Oh, I got to interrupt you for a second. I was worried that I would run out of space. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. <laughs> uh, so, so I stopped the recording and I'm changing it to uh, a lower speed, a lower quality. Okay. So I will be four or five seconds behind you from this point. Oh, okay. in the recording. Sure. Yep. So so when you edit it together, once you hear me saying this, remember that I'm I'm behind you. <laughs> okay. Sorry, continue. Yep. Uh, so at this point, I think Mark's had enough of...